but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. I'm James. This is episode 167. Just two nights ago, we were at the Rogers Cup watching Serena Williams beat Naomi Osaka. Mm -hmm. That feels like forever ago. We've since taken a very long road trip to get to Cincinnati. Yeah, we are currently sitting in the car, but don't worry, it's not moving this time. <laughs> there there so... will be no... I-90 thuds yeah. on this episode. So we're just sitting here in the parking lot at the Western and Southern Open in Cincinnati. It is pretty hot. There's no AC running. We will be swampy by the end of it. Mm. Yeah, too much information. <laughs> we had a, an eventful day of pre-tournament press availability from top ATP players, from uh, coaches on WTA. Heard from Annie Murray, who's playing singles here for his first singles tournament since Australia. We Roger spoke Federer, to, yeah. uh, Novak Djokovic, Stefano Tsitsipas, and a bunch of coaches. The coaches stuff, which we were able to do last year, we'll save some of that stuff for an episode later in the week, but you will hear some audio from Federer and Djokovic with respect to the Players' Council and the, the movement that's been happening recently with the news that Federer and Nadal are returning to the council. We get to hear Federer's thoughts on why and how that happened. Uh, we get to hear Novak's response as far as his reaction to it and both of their perspectives on whether or not a union would help the ATP tour. Mm. But first, we have to recap the Rogers Cup in Toronto and Montreal. Uh, as we said, we, you know, we live in Toronto. We were there for a few nights, saw two Serena matches and a Serena practice. Mm -hmm. uh, clearly, between Serena and Bianca, they were the superstars of Toronto this week. They were the players who everybody wanted to see even before we knew what was going to shake out with the draw. And I had noted in our agenda here that the tournament really could not have asked for a better result, a better final than Andreescu versus <laughs> Serena. But and as it turned out... The irony of saying that because the final was the absolute worst scenario they could uh -huh. imagine. It was... Uh a 3-1 lead for Andreescu before Serena had to retire due to back spasms. Yeah. So, you know how it is. People are, like, barely making it to their seats at the point of the match that it ended. You know, the tournament must have lost so much in concessions and stuff like that. Well, uh, whatever they lost, they probably made up in the $14.75 Aperol spritzes that they <laughs> sold all week in these janky-ass plastic cups. Oh, my God. They came in souvenir cups. I thought they were going to be glass, but no. That's really the only reason I bought it. Is like yeah. I like the shape of these glasses. I'm going to have two for home, and now I want to throw them out. <laughs> <laughs> There's a recipe on it on, as to how to make an Aperol spritz. Like, bitch, I know how to do that. We have Google. I mean, we don't need it on the glass. <laughs> we digress. When was the last time we did an episode? Uh, around not quite two weeks ago, right? Uh, I honestly don't remember. Okay. So since then, um, what has happened? I went to Rogers Cup on Sunday um, for the free sessions and got to see Serena practice on center court there. 
which is an amazing thing that they do for fans in Toronto. The Saturday and Sunday of qualifying is free. It's like their family days. And they have qualifying matches, obviously, but they have a lot of top players practice on big courts. And you can just wander in the center court, sit in the very front row courtside, and watch these players practice. That was awesome. Serena wasn't really having a great day at practice, but you did get, a, get to see what's on her playlist, what songs she skips. There's a lot of Rihanna, a lot of Drake. You know, people she's actually friends with in real life. How does that work, though? Because... You, you told me that it seemed like she had her phone yes. hooked up to the yeah. stadium PA system. Yeah, exactly. So she would stop playing. So Patrick had her phone, and she would make Jarmir, like, pause for a moment, feeding her balls, and she'd walk over and tell Patrick to give her the phone, and then she would skip to a song she wanted. <laughs> Chip was there. Chip Christopher Rafael Nadal, the dog's government name. Uh, it was all around a very cool experience. So leading up to this final, Serena kind of alternated really good performances with kind of a like, okay, but it seemed that she had really gotten herself into a position where she felt comfortable and confident in her game. Mm -hmm. And the highlight of that was beating Osaka in the, the much height rematch of the US Open final from last year. Yes. First two matches, slow starts. We know this. Serena has done this for many, many years. Went down a break or two, got it back, won in straight sets in both of those matches. Against Naomi, it was a completely different story. I wasn't sure what to expect from the match at all. I assumed that Serena was going to be mentally very, very pumped. But the story of her comeback so far is that she has, of course, blinked in some finals. But physically, you never quite know where she's at because she has been beset by a bunch of pretty unfortunate injuries, which has prevented her from playing a lot of matches back-to-back. -back. So I was hoping that the Naomi match would be very competitive. I didn't have any sort of predictions about the result, though. One of the things that we've talked about on the show over the last year, really, since Serena's come back and been competitive in Grand Slams but not able to win the final is what is it that she needs to get over the hump like can she get over the hump mm. and as it turned out this week it seems that what she really needed was the matches yeah and good health and which is why when she gets to the final and she has to retire against Andrescu we see a very emotional Serena Williams mm. in tears barely able to speak accepting her runner-up trophy and I read that as wow I finally got myself into a position where I feel good physically I'm seeing results on the court I have this huge win against Osaka I get to the final I'm feeling good and then this shit again right and we don't know what kind of physical pain she was in which I imagine can be pretty excruciating with back spasms if you're in the middle of one so it was a combination of that and like you said the performance that she put together against Osaka had to have been so encouraging for her because she came out with a very clear plan the serve was executed very well and she was scrambling like she was able to move in and out of the corners which has been lacking so to go from that performance then to gut out that win against Boskova in the semifinals I think today she thought she was in a really good position to take this title. 
And this is what she needs, right? Like, she needs matches. She needs to sort of get that taste of victory again, I think. But even to not take the title, that's one thing. But to then not take the title because of injury, have this week in Cincinnati jeopardized Mm. the prospect of getting more matches and building on her week in Toronto jeopardized. That must be so disheartening for her. Yeah. Now, for her part, Bianca really behaved in such a classy way. I was so impressed the way that she handled the situation. She is very young. She's playing at home. The crowd was going to be unpredictable. And she went over to Serena and comforted her and said, you're a fucking beast. She said that? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So you have this little girl, basically, this 19-year-old woman who is comforting the greatest player of all time, saying, like, I look up to you. Like, the things you've been through and this is just one more thing Mm -hmm. you know I think sometimes the way Bianca expresses herself comes off a little bit clumsy in terms of it's not polished it's very jockish it's very Mississauga (laughs) what do you know about Mississauga it's very Mississauga bro (laughs) it is very greater greater Toronto area generation Z it is yes but for her part I mean I can't say enough about this woman's game. I'm literally mm-hmm. dumbfounded in a lot of ways. Well, you look at her run that she had in Toronto. Keep in mind, she's doing this on her home court. This is the first time that she's playing this tournament as a legitimate threat. But she's coming in after having two months off because of injury. A serious injury yeah. that for a lot of players has jeopardized their futures. And she starts against Jeannie Bouchard, the all-Canadian matchup on center court. And Jeannie brought it. Jeannie was up to that task. And that was three sets. Bianca eventually prevailing 6-4 in the third. Then she gets Kazatkina, who's had a rough go of it. She brings it. (laughs) And Bianca pulls that one out 7-5 in the third. Then she takes out Kiki Burton's in three sets again. 6-4 6-4 in the mm-hmm. third. That's the number five seed. Then she kicks out... Kicks out. <laughs> she takes out Karolina Pliskova, the three seed. 6-4 in the third. She bagels Pliskova in the first set. Mm. She had a six-love lead in that first set. Winning again 6-4 in the third. Before finally an easier go of it. 6-4, 7-6 over Kennan in the semifinals. And then she gets Serena in the final. That didn't happen. Really, her first easy match Mm -hmm. was the final. And to say, well, oh, she kind of backhanded into this title. She earned it. Like, she went through the field. And there was also no guarantee that had Serena been fit, that Bianca couldn't beat her. Absolutely. You know, Bianca has won her first seven matches against top ten players in her career. That's crazy. Who does that? That's that's nuts. Uh, it is. And it's one of those stats that you hear about Monica Seles coming up and Serena Williams. Like, the the huge wins they get at a very early stage in their career. Like, it presages mm-hmm. something possibly momentous. We don't know. Listen, but... she's won Indian Wells and now Toronto in the same year. <laughs> right. And now winning Toronto after being out for two months. Mm. This is huge. And on top of that, she won it without her best stuff in some of the crucial moments that third set against Pliskova 
I don't I just don't know how one person at that age could hit such good second serves in crucial mm. moments I, I could not believe it yeah I think uh, what's really scary about Bianca if you're the rest of the field is that aside from these injury concerns which I think are still very very serious she is an incredible competitor I don't know where it came from I don't know if it's natural inborn with her but winning after such a long injury layoff what is it four straight three set matches mm -hmm. two of them against top 10 players like it's scary and it's one of those things where if you can win when you're not at your best what can you do when you're <laughs> when you're everything is firing and people look at her like she's scrappy that she's dramatic which I think she is both of those things to a degree right but I think folks overlook what she's using to get through those moments I doubt you'll find a more complete player maybe two or three other players you could think of than Andrescu on the women's tour right now mm. and she's only 19 she can literally hit every shot in the book she can go flat out with the ground strokes she can slice off both wings she pushed back against this idea that she uses moon balls right she was like look it's strategy like I do it to break up momentum in a rally I can it's I deploy it because I want to and it's for a reason mm. And when you factor in that she's got a good first serve, an excellent second serve, uh, the sky's the limit, really, provided she can stay healthy. Yeah, yeah. And we had a really similar conversation after she won Indian Wells, but now the caveat is health. Mm -hmm. Because at that time it was all upside. But now we've got this shoulder thing that is, who knows? Like, it could potentially recur. Mm -hmm. She had the thigh strapped for the last couple matches. Mm. She's withdrawn from Cincinnati, which doesn't come as a surprise. Right. Being away from the tour for so long, getting these five, six matches in in Toronto, winning the title. Who knows if it's a function of, well, it's smart to take a break. Well, it's what she should have done in Miami and didn't. Yeah. Or whether maybe there's some little niggle that she's dealing with again, who knows. But either way, she's probably better off for not being here mm. this week. Elsewhere, well, in Canada. So the men in Coupe Roger in Montreal, the the last men's winner in Montreal was Alexander Zverev. Rafa won Toronto last year. So we have this weird, like, we sort of have two defending champions. Mm -hmm. Actually, the ATP called Zverev the defending champion of Montreal, which oh. is uh, awkward because they're both the Rogers Cup, yeah. right? This they're, is a discussion Canadian that Open. we've seen quite a bit yeah. this past week. And I think we both fall on the side of it being whoever won last year regardless of wherever well, yeah. it was but there is an argument that the conditions are so different mm -hmm. and the the type of player who excels in each city is is different right Serena has won it three times only in Toronto yeah, well tell that to Rafael Nadal <laughs> <laughs> right because he'll be defending in Canada for the next two years yes yes Daniel Medvedev we just heard in press actually earlier today he was in qualifying last year for Cincinnati his rise has been crazy. Mm -hmm. He's played a lot. He's won a lot of smaller hardcore tournaments over the past year or so. He's been consistent. Yeah. So now you're starting to see big results in bigger tournaments. That's who Rafa played in the final. Yeah. And for Medvedev, his run over this past year, he won in Sofia. He made the final in Barcelona and Washington. Washington just, like, what, two weeks ago? Mm -hmm. A week and a half ago? Then he also made the semifinals in Monte Carlo, Rotterdam, and Queens Club. 
So he's doing this across all surfaces. Right. With one of the ugliest games in all of tennis. <laughs> he, uh, he has a very casual aspect to him, right? Mm-hmm. The forehand especially is just a little bit weird. I find his game kind of charming. Yeah, I, I actually like watching I quite him. enjoy watching him play. Yeah. He doesn't give you any rhythm at all. And remember, this is the dude who gave us one of the great lines of 2018. Oh my god. Why don't you shut your fuck up? <laughs> like, that stuff is the stuff of legend. And the two... The enemies are possibly now frenemies. Stefanos Tsitsipas took a private plane with Nikirios and Medvedev. Uh-huh. Uh, Anything is possible. He said it was a great time. That they they were all just talking. He, by he, you uh, Oh, Stefanos. Stefanos said they were all just hanging out and talking. And Nick was obviously the ringleader. He did like 90% of the talking. But uh, things seemed to be fine. Medvedev said that he and Stefanos are not friends, but they are not enemies either. <laughs> what was Medvedev's path to the final in Montreal? Well, he took out Kyle Edmund easily in, in his first match. 6-3-6 love. Christian Garin, who I saw practicing today. Dominic Team apparently was sick. Six three six one. He's practicing tonight um, in Cincinnati, so he's planning on playing, as far as I know. Uh, he faced off against fellow Russian Hachanov in the semifinals, and this is the highest level meeting of two Russian men ever in ATP history, which is crazy to me. We've seen semifinal meetups in apparently lower level tournaments, but on the Masters level, this is the the latest stage that two Russian men have met. And so Daniil had won four matches in straight sets getting to the final before getting steamrolled by Rafa 636-Love. And uh, before the tournament started in Montreal, Rafa was asked if he was going to play in Cincinnati this year. Because if you recall, last year he won in Toronto and then pulled out of Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. He had a much tougher go of it last year, to say the least. Yes. This year in Montreal, he started against Dan Evans, which was... A little of a, a slow start for him. It was. He he was in kind of a pissy mood. There was some rain interruptions. He was down 4-1 in the first set before eventually winning 7-6-6-4. He beats Pella in the second round. Well, the round of 16, Rafa's second yeah. round. Before that man, that matchup, <laughs> Fabio Fonini in the quarterfinals. Fabio won the first set 6-2 before Rafa came back and won 6-1, 6-2 mm. in the second and third Fabio apparently carrying an ankle injury. Yeah. And Rafa having to, well, not having to, but consoling him a little bit at the end, asking him, you know, what's going on? He's like, well, this ankle issue going on. He's like, don't worry about it. I had that issue. I had it operated on. You'll be fine. It's a quick recovery. Yeah. Yeah. These two guys who are like on the wrong side of 30 talking about, get this surgery real quick. Then you can come (laughs) back, play another six years or something. Also on the wrong side of the friendship line. Uh, But see... (laughs) You know, the animosity doesn't seem to extend further than the match, right? Hmm. I really do feel that when Rafa says he's too old for this shit, he means it. I know. All the drama has evaporated. Uh, Mofis was to be Rafa's opponent in the semifinal. However, because of rain the night before, Rafa got done with his match against Funini just in time before the rain started. Mm. Mofis was not so lucky. He had to come back the next day, play early in the afternoon and then potentially play Rafa again at night. After his three-set win earlier in the day, he had nothing left. Mm. He had actually picked up a little bit of an injury toward the end of that match. And in conjunction with his team, they decided that 
they shouldn't play. They shouldn't even yeah. take the court against Rafa. Well, and I mean, when does Guillermo Fies not have a little bit of an injury, really? He's scheduled to play Francis Tiafo in their first match in Cincinnati, which I think, I hope happens, because that'll be really cool. Mm-hmm. Now, did we cover DC in our last episode? I don't think we did. Uh, yeah, so we checked real quick, and no, we didn't talk about the end of DC last time. When you say well, you checked real quick, you just didn't believe me. Uh, okay, but I still <laughs> checked. That wasn't a lie. Nick, Nick here... <laughs> Nick had a, a hell of a run, obviously. He was in really good spirits all week. Seemed like he was just happy to be there. His body was cooperating. He played doubles with Tsitsipas. They played uh, Cabal and Farah, who are the current number one doubles team in the world, and uh, challenged them. It was a good match. It was close. Unfortunately for them, they draw the same team again Uh, in Cincinnati. (laughs) Right, so it may work out differently. Although Tsitsipas was extremely low energy impressed today (laughs) and remarked that he was just kind of tired, that he feels like he just needs a break. I, I doubt he'll take a break, but... Kyrus was doing this strange but absolutely normal thing for him where on big points he would go to a fan and ask them where to serve (laughs) and then when he would serve to that spot and win the point he would run back to the back of the court and celebrate with Mm -hmm. them like this is Kyrgios at his best you know like for Uh all the things that we hear about Kyrgios is he good for the sport is he a draw is he this, is he that? When he's doing these kinds of things, that's truly exciting to watch. Yeah. And but, a, a plus for the fan engagement and the fan experience. The the good for the sport thing is done. Like, I'm not ever going to take that up again. No. It's not interesting. It's trash. <laughs> it's just been, it's been overdone. But whether or not he wants to play or whatever, that's also not super interesting to me. The point is when he is there... When everything is working, when he's engaged, he is a star. Like, his star power is extremely rare. Mm -hmm. For those who question it, just before heading to the car to record this episode, I was standing by the player's entrance when they walk into the player's lounge. And whenever it's cordoned off and people are lined up, you can tell a player is either coming in or coming out. And in walked Nick Kyrgios to a loud round of applause. Mm -hmm. They were super happy and excited to see him. And it was a ton of kids. Like, Mm -hmm. little kids really like him. He said in DC Press last week that he's come to it that perhaps he needs to do a little bit better because he's realized just how many kids Mm. are into him and look up to him. Right. And he likes... He's really good with kids one-on-one, too. Like, he likes kids. Um, What Actually, when I was walking out here, Francis Tiafo was walking out at the player's entrance, but they didn't cordon it off. So it was like, you could just walk by. It was so weird. Like, did they not know who Francis is? Uh, apparently they don't think he's big enough yeah. a draw. If you're big enough, they close the gates so nobody uh-huh. can come near you, you know? Nick played his doubles partners, or his doubles partner Tsitsipas in the semifinals there. Tsitsipas had had this weird drama in every single match in Washington with his shoelaces. So at, a, at some juncture of every match, he would have to stop play and fix his shoelaces. Get a new pair of shoes. Benoit Pair Mid-game? Benoit Pair lost his goddamn mind. Just, <laughs> he lost it because Stefanos halted play and was just... In the middle of a game. And really taking his mm. sweet time. Yes. Uh, 
totally oblivious. Right. He was just waiting for some shoes to arrive. When they did arrive, he really took his time putting them on. Benoit is just having uh, an absolute conniption. And I, I was totally with Ben at that point. And then in the following game, Pear did the same kind of mockingly, jokingly, mm-hmm. To make a point, to be petty. The pettiness was, jumped out. It was petty goals, is what it was. And so he stopped and just went over and, mm. like, changed his shoe. Because he could. Yeah. Or in the semifinal against Nick, it happened as well. But Nick went over and presented Stefanos his new pair of shoes on bended knee. And made it a joke. <laughs> so these two, I mean, they they seem to be having a good time with each other. That It... Originally seemed they were never destined to get along. Nick was kind of mean to him from afar. But um, and Nick has also expressed that he sort of admires Stephanos and he doesn't want to corrupt him. <laughs> but they have the Greek connection going on. Stephanos said today that one of the reasons why he enjoys spending time with Nick is because he's so much different than he is. Mm. And uh, he considers himself an introvert. He self-labeled himself an introvert yes. today. Uh, meanwhile, Nick is all, is talking all the time. And so he feels that there's some benefit, something he can learn from being around somebody like Nick. Mm-hmm. And so that balance between Nick feeling he's a bad influence on Stefanos and Stefanos feeling he can learn something from Nick, we'll see how that goes. Uh, Stefanos is always learning. He's always making himself better, as you can tell from his Twitter feed. Self-improvement is a project. He's very curious about life, except when it comes to changing shoes in a timely and appropriate manner (laughs) on a tennis court. Uh One of the things that I wanted to talk about on this episode specifically was the state of the Williams sisters. And it was something that we were able to get a bird's eye view of in Toronto last week, Mm -hmm. mainly because we saw Serena play twice. And we saw Venus and Serena practice. When we showed up for the first session that we we went to Wednesday night, of course, the main event was Serena as the top build player that night. Mm. We got there early and were able to see Venus Williams at 6.30 practicing on the outer courts. Mind you, this is after she had already lost her opening round She had lost on Monday, right? She played Tuesday during the day session and she lost. In straight sets. And uh, it was her fourth straight first round loss. Mm. And it, I'm not going to lie. It, it it gave me cause for concern. What is, what is happening with her at this point? When somebody's at 39 trying to be a professional athlete out here and suffers four straight first round mm. losses to players that she probably shouldn't well, be losing to. One of them was to Bethany Maddox-Sands, who has just returned to singles play after a long time. It was her first and, hardcourt win in like two, three years. Yeah, yeah. And even at her peak in singles, mm-hmm. Venus should beat her. The thing that hadn't worried me about Venus up until this point was the fact that she was losing to players that you would say, well, okay, she'd lose to Simona Halep. Yeah. I get that. She could lose to Elise Mertens. Okay, I get that. But then when you're out here losing to Bethany Maddox-Sands on a hard court, under those circumstances, it gives, it gives a great deal of pause. And then she draws Carla Suarez-Navarro in the first round. And while Carla had given her fits back in the days when Venus was struggling with her showgirls, it's been pretty easy sailing for Venus in the last handful of matchups against Carla. Mm. 
That said, Carla played a superb match against Venus. And while Venus couldn't get the job done, she was close. Like she still had pop on her first serve. She was able to sustain rallies from the ground. Like it didn't look like a dire situation. Mm. That said, she didn't have a forehand. <laughs> and the second serve was a mess. It was a, a more heartening performance than the one against Bethany Matic, where in the second set in San Jose, Venus didn't look like she had any energy whatsoever. Mm. She wasn't taking any time in between points, between serves. She was just stepping up, stepping up to the line and putting the ball in. That's not what we saw in Toronto. Still, the result was the same. And so when I saw her on the outer court practicing at 6.30, looking eager, looking keen, taking instruction from her coach, I was like, well, wow, like this is a 39-year-old woman who is doing everything she possibly can to right this ship mm. and get her career back on course. And then, two days later, she's in Cincinnati practicing again, practicing with Caroline Wozniacki. Who else was she practicing with? Madison Keys. She was practicing yeah, with again. that's so unusual. And then for Serena Williams, like I said earlier in the episode, we'd gone through this long stretch of Serena not being able to win that title, that elusive title since coming back, struggling in Grand Slam finals, and not really being able to get a full grasp on where she's headed. Mm-hmm. Like, what exactly is the problem? What what can be done to fix it? And we that was laid bare in Toronto this week. So for me, I leave the Rogers Cup with a much more positive outlook to varying degrees Mm -hmm. for both the Williams sisters well so we'll see how Venus plays in her first match here in Cincinnati Uh, the other thing is that we always assumed that the Tokyo Olympics were a milestone could have been you know maybe the end of Venus's career at this stage she's gonna have a hell of a time qualifying Mm -hmm. she's not gonna qualify in singles she could it's gonna be difficult very unlikely but her best bet is to get a doubles ranking. She's got to play some doubles tournaments, get a ranking high enough that could justify her selection as a doubles player. So that's another thing to look out for with Venus. I mean, she might play longer than Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we have no idea. That's the, I think that was sort of a goalpost that a lot of media people put up there because it's just, well, hello, she's going to be 40. So <laughs> People had retired her before right. Rio. She wasn't supposed to yes. play Rio. Mm-hmm. I remember having conversations with people in the know who said that there's no way Venus is qualifying for Rio. And, and yeah. she did. And then she went on to have that fabulous year in 2017. Mm. Uh, so we, we shall see. She gets Lauren Davis in the first round. She'll play tomorrow, second on center court. Lauren Davis is somebody that she's beaten three times, all three times in easy straight set matches. All right. We shall see. Mm-hmm. Which brings us to our Cincy preview. It's not going to be a long, drawn-out thing. Just like, what are, what are some of yeah. the notable things that's uh, happening here. The big story, I think, is Andy Murray's return to singles play. We've seen him play doubles in, I think, he said five tournaments so far. It seems like a lot. I didn't realize it was five. With Feliciano Lopez, with his brother. And this is this was his best-case scenario goal. Playing in Cincinnati in singles was, if I'm feeling good, that would be my best case. He said he's playing pain-free. There's no pain in the hip. His movement, of course, is not where he would like it. Mm -hmm. That's going to be a work in progress. But he seemed really optimistic. He hinted that he doesn't expect to get the full range of mobility that he had at his peak. Well. 
before right. the hip surgery. I don't think anyone. But can he still that. expects to have further improvement in his rehab because he's yes. not done rehabbing yet. Exactly. So he's gonna. It you know right now it seems like he's managing his own expectations. He's excited to play. He doesn't know what to expect, but he's happy. There's no pain. And beyond that, like, what do we know until we actually see him? And for him, he gets a, a fairly good matchup first off against Richard Gasquet. Mm -hmm. It could be a hell of a lot worse. Right. Novak Djokovic and Kiki Burtons are your defending champs. Novak hasn't played since Wimbledon. He took a, uh, a well-deserved break mm -hmm. after winning the Wimbledon final, saving two match points. He was, uh, he was in pretty good spirits in press today. Seems super relaxed. He answered our questions answered, about the Players' Council exactly. stuff. Wasn't combative at all about Players' Council. And, I mean, you know, he finally got over the hump of winning Cincinnati. That was the last Masters tournament he uh, didn't have last he year. He earned his Master Blaster <laughs> yeah. last year. And I don't see why he can't do it again. Kiki Burtons has played uh, 17 tournaments since Wimbledon. <laughs> on, the, on the flip side... She lost to uh, Bianca Andreescu last week in Toronto. Kiki, man, I don't know. She has proven herself on all surfaces now. If she's fit, if she's mentally there, she can be an absolute threat here again. As is the case with anybody on the yeah. WTA. Man, Stan Wawrinka and Grigor Dimitrov are joined at the hip. Poor Grigor. Because Stan has had his number. Yeah. This is the fourth time in the last year that they're meeting in the first round. <laughs> twice in slams yeah. and in back-to-back -back tournaments now they played in montreal and now they're going to play again in cincinnati mm. and grigor has not had the better end of that equation no grigor was the champion here in cincinnati in 2017 his first and only masters then he won the atp tour finals and he has had an absolutely bleak season mm -hmm. he's fought through some injuries played through some injuries whereas some players may have gone and done a surgery you know maybe mm -hmm. that was not the best route for him to go but this is where he is and the when you're ranked in the vicinity that he is you run the risk of playing top guys stan is not even ranked as a top guy anymore right. which makes it all the more unfortunate because you would think that if you draw somebody ranked in the 20s in the first round of a masters tournament you'd be like okay i'll take it right the other, uh, I mean, we mentioned TFO Mofi's first round. The other big one is Muguruza Keys, which uh, two years ago, Muguruza had that great run to the title in Cincinnati, and Madison was playing really well. She and Muguruza faced off in the round of 16, played an excellent match, a long three-set match, some great power tennis, and I would like to see it again. I want to see Madison and Murutha recapture some of that confidence, that bombast that they have when they're at their best. It was the match that converted your mother to women's tennis. It was, actually. Yeah, she was a huge fan of Garbinia during that tournament. And Garbinia also played uh, a classic against Svetlana Kuznetsova. In the semifinals. Mm -hmm. Who is also here. Mm -hmm. She got a wild card, just like Andy Murray did. And uh, she's over her... Visa issues. Mm -hmm. Courtney Nguyen was able to report that she got through immigration with no trouble. Earlier, we alluded to the news that Roger and Rafa have joined the Players' Council again. That recently came out. They were they put their names in the ring and were elected to the council. 
they had kind of conferenced before, and I guess Roger was the instigator. Because in Montreal, Rafa told us he was the one. He was the first one to be asked about it. He said, "Well, obviously, we're not going to do it if we're not doing it together." Kind of thing. Uh, I was like, like, "Okay, okay, Rafa." Was was that obvious? Didn't know it was that obvious, but you roll like that, apparently. Yeah. Which and, is kind of funny because I thought they had developed some tensions when they were previously on the council together because their outlooks were so different. It's clear that they have tethered themselves to each other. Yes. Forever. They're going to be a tandem. They'll be fed all till they die. Yeah, yeah. We did ask Roger Federer kind of what was the impetus for him wanting to join the Players' Council again after serving for so many years previously. And at this stage in his career, you know, why do you want to go back? He he dropped a little thing that I thought was interesting that he apparently is close with Robin Haza, and Robin has been keeping him abreast of everything. Like, literally everything that has been happening in Players' Council, Robin has told Roger. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, we'll let you listen to Roger's response now, and then we'll chat about it for a moment. Roger, yourself and Rafa are rejoining the ATP Council. In Montreal, Rafa said that he wouldn't be doing it without you and that obviously you two had talked about it. I'm wondering if there's any specific impetus on your part to get back into the fold and if you have anything specific that you want to see on the agenda going forward. Um, well, I mean, when I uh, heard that um, some of the guys resigned after the tough Wimbledon meeting, um, it was also Robin Hase there, part of that, who I've been speaking to in, in recent years, you know, a lot, uh, just to find out what was going on in the council. Um, he was informing me. Um, well, I don't know, my first thought was like, oh, that's too bad, and that's no good, you know, that there is such um, not the right vibe, maybe, potentially, you know, uh, on the council, like it's maybe supposed to be. And uh, I couldn't be on the council because the term runs until next year, Wimbledon, but the, by them, Pulling out, I spoke to Rafa and asked him, well, I don't know, we can at least, you know, just be on the council and see a little bit what's happening, um, if we can help with anything. Um, is there issues with uh, communication, maybe? Uh, because that's what I feel uh, is maybe lacking the most. And uh, and then maybe what's going on is correct, you know, and, and, the, and the right movement, but maybe it's, it's completely not. And uh, I think it's just such imp- important times right now that uh, I think it'd be too be wrong to sit on the sidelines, and, um, and yeah, this is where Rafa said, "Sure, I'll do it." And I, I told him, "Look, I'll only do it if you'll also do it." And um, I'm happy. Then at the end, the council chose us because they still have to vote for us. Uh, they could have easily just said no. Okay, that would have maybe not been a good look for them, but, uh, <laughs> but they still had that uh, that power, you know. And um, and I'm sure they also had maybe other. Uh, names in mind, and um, they probably didn't expect us to to give it a go. But um, I'm happy that uh, the Rafa said yes, that the guys said yes, and uh, we'll have our first uh, council meeting um, before the Open. Obviously, there's a delicate balance with with the interests of the governing parties and then the players. With you know, in that whole setup, do you think that the players could benefit from having a union within that superstructure? Yeah, I mean, let's see w- what's up. You know, unions are always very complex and complicated. We've heard that word for decades now, you know, so it's easy to, to throw it around and then 
nothing ever gets uh, gets done or it's just um, impossible to get everybody aligned with it um, the, stru the structure as we know has its flaws but it also has its uh, its positives you know but uh, yeah yeah I just need to get some time to find my bearings again you know but uh, I feel like I have been updated in the past um, you know I want to speak to Rafa uh, here this week if once he gets here um, I have a few uh, the discussions I would like to have as well with the other council members and then um, just be prepared for the, the meeting um, sort of I guess in what is it 10 days from now. I like that Roger wanted to make it clear that there wasn't any specific thing he was fixing to fix. It's not, it's not like he's coming with his bag of tricks to go right a bunch of wrongs. He's giving a very measured approach. He wants to talk to Rafa when he gets here. Mm and he'll go from there because there's this this kind of ah, overtone of are these two coming back to step on Djokovic's toes kind of well not that Roger's they, saying that but that's something that be. folks may be thinking oh of course and when the news broke I just kind of laughed I'm like oh my god here it comes because you're gonna you're expecting drama mm -hmm. right they've been observing what's been happening on council if they were perfectly content with what's been happening, they wouldn't have joined council again. Because it's a lot. It's a mm -hmm. lot of work. Roger has a family. Like these busy. are five, six-hour meetings. Well, and he said he would like to shorten the meetings. <laughs> he did say that. Good luck with that. But after this explosive meeting before Wimbledon, and several, I think four players resigned, clearly there, there's something going on. Like, something is not being handled as well as it should be. Mm-hmm. They, none of the players we spoke to wanted to speak directly to the issues at hand. And I was actually trying to get a little bit more of that. Like, you know, what are your specific goals mm -hmm. on, on council? And they were like, well, you know, that's not really how it works. Well, to that point, let's listen to what Novak had to say because he spoke more specifically to that. Would you be willing to talk about any of the specific goals you have with regard to players' council for the rest of the year or maybe a Philosophy that's kind of driving you? Well, look, you know, you have to, we have to remember that the, the, the council is, is only part of the, the structure of ATP, and it's obviously players and tournaments that have 50% uh, of, uh, of the structure. And um, we in the council do not have uh, the voting rights, it's our board representatives. And then we have management of the ATP that usually brings out the agenda prior to the meeting and discusses that with players, uh, whether it's prior to a meeting or an actual meeting, depending on the availability of the players. So um, I've been now, I don't know, maybe eight years in total in, in the council. At the beginning of my career, then I had a little break, and now it's been maybe six years, five, six years in, in, in total. and. I've um, experienced different groups, and I think this, this group in the last couple of years has been the most responsive one uh, in terms of their engagement in communication. We have, uh, um, you know, at least once a week um, a, a get-together on a conference call or, or, or on a WhatsApp group or whatever it is and different ways of communicating. So we, we, we are quite involved and active and try to understand the different, so to say, dynamics of what is happening in the tennis world. I, I can't speak 
myself on on what what the the goals will be of the of the council. I, I am the president of the council. I have that privilege, but at the same time, um, at the same time, I, I you know have to obviously confirm with the rest of the group what is the sort of say uh, a common threat that we all, at least the majority, um, stand for. And and as I said, you know I think this group is is better than than any that I have been part of. It sounds like there's a, the way you describe it, a top-down structure with the way it's set up and the way agendas are brought to the meetings. Is that something that you'd like to see change? Where maybe the it's people not on the council have more of a say as to... Well, well I, think, I think, first of all, you know, we have to, again, I have to repeat that that's our, not our primary job. We play tennis and, and obviously we, we volunteer to, to spend our time in the council. Uh, we meet five times a year and and then we of course there's a lot of communication uh, even when when the, the council members are not together and um, we it's it's very difficult for us to to constantly create agenda if, if if that's answering your question basically it's normal to expect that the management will be the one proposing the agenda and uh, trying to keep players informed and keep them in the loop in terms of what is happening and of course it's not that rigid players are as well contributing participating in the uh, agenda itself uh, there's been a lot of lot of talks actually last few days about the agenda for New York meeting where you know we, we, we were proposing certain things that we feel that are on the priority and, and we want to be a little bit more efficient on the meetings because it's uh, it's been a uh, a marathon in the last couple of meetings of five plus hours, you know, sitting on the table for for someone that is supposed to play within two days. It's it's mm. quite quite an effort. Do you yeah. think no. that maybe a, a union would be helpful at all to the players in this regard to kind of separate the interests from like the upper level management it's of the tour from the players? Look, you know, uh, there's been there's been a lot of talks about that in the past, but uh, I mean, I can't say anything about it because uh, right now I'm, I'm part of the, the structure of ATP which is players and tournaments and I try to deliver my best so to say quality and knowledge and, and, and I guess energy into into this association and talk with players represented in the right way uh, whether the players can be and maybe should have a stronger position I mean I'm always for that I'm always for you know players players having a stronger stand um, but in the end of the day this is what we have uh, this is the reality and the present present moment and we'll see what future brings you can tell that Novak is in a place now where he wants to respect the structure mm. of the board and the players council the governing bodies he's not gonna rock the boat about the actual infrastructure that's in place he sees himself as a neutral person right and he also said that the management sets the agenda and the players council sort of meets and convenes and, and makes recommendations based on management's agenda. Mm -hmm. So he's not positioning himself as, as pushing any sort of points or goals that he wants to accomplish, which is interesting to me yeah. because from Good. that perspective, you can see, you can interpret the players council as being totally defanged. Yeah. Right. Well, I I tried to ask him about that 
I think it ended up coming out a little bit clumsy, but he got the gist of it. He's presenting it like, you know, it's not like we're coming with this agenda. It's actually the other way around. And so I asked him, you know, given that it seems to be, as per your words, a, a top-down thing with the uh, the agenda, uh, do you think it would be in, in the best interest of the players uh, to form a union? Because it's a, it's a balancing act here with the current setup. Novak is always telling us, well, you guys don't understand the setup. This is the setup. This is what we're dealing with. This is the way it is. Well, maybe we should change the setup. Mm. Because as it stands, we're, we're having a situation where folks are trying to balance the interests of management and the tour and the tournament directors with the interests of the players. And we've seen, and what we believe, is that within this structure, the players necessarily get the shorter end of the stick. Well, and just that there is an inherent conflict that is really, really difficult to navigate if you don't have an independent board. Mm -hmm. You know, the Players' Council exists apart from the board of directors, but their only voting power is to basically convince their three representatives on the board of directors to vote along with what they want. And, you know, there's three player reps, three tournament reps. That's six. That's an even number. Like... <laughs> Like, you have these top three wealthiest guys in the history of tennis now, mm -hmm. right, on this board. If those three wanted to put their heads together and say, well, look, we're starting a union. And if you all don't meet our demands, then there will be no tennis on the ATP tour. The tournaments will suffer. Their hands will be forced. And you know what? On top of that, we're going to start a little pool of funds that we're going to contribute to that find like the top 25 players don't need that money for that six months but the guys who are struggling from like 50 to 200 they can get a monthly oh, payout a strike fund we can subsidize them like if the will were there right yeah. like there's this idea that tennis is so difficult to unionize because it's not like the nba where it's one product where it's one league it's played in like one country you know like we're talking yeah. about a lot of tournaments strewn across the globe how do you unionize a sport where so many different tournaments countries uh federations are affected yeah but i don't think it's as impossible as one would think and now there's some ridiculous music playing on center court <laughs> i think they're playing us off is that what they're doing <laughs> what did you think about the whole union bit well i was glad you asked the question but the answers were totally unsurprising to me the ATP representatives are literally in the room mm -hmm. right I was surprised that they weren't annoyed by the question <laughs> but uh, what what are Roger and Novak going to say they're not going to put anything on record about that if I Novak thought, see, or, I thought they were more forthcoming than than, than dismissive well, they, they weren't, weren't dismissive no they weren't afraid of the question um, and there was a little bit of like I don't know maybe maybe not uh, it's been one of the things that's been talked about right. and we don't know how it would work if it would be effective kind of thing it's been talked about for dec literally decades the ATP has gone on strike before that was a long time ago you know um, yeah I was I was happy that they both were willing to engage with the question at all if there is a more radical agenda it is completely behind the scenes though like if if Novak or any of his colleagues have serious goals and achievements they'd like 
on the Players' Council, they are definitely keeping it to themselves, which I, I expected would be the answer. I, I'm still just trying to get a, a sense of, like, what is Novak's... Uh, like, is there a driving philosophy behind what he wants to accomplish on Council? And he is very secretive about it, which is fair. If he feels that might undermine what they're trying to accomplish, then I get it. But I, there's still so much mystery about what do these guys want. Vashek has been pretty open about it. And he's but, on the council. So like right. these are things that these guys, well, in this case, Novak is exposed to. Yeah. Like he knows that that's something that people want. Mm-hmm. But that's not something that he wants to talk about publicly, which I guess no. is his want. And he actually did mention, uh, not unprompted, he mentioned being disappointed by the leaks on council. <laughs> he's been disappointed by that a lot. Yes, but he brought it up again today. Oh, wow. That really is our cue to leave. They just announced John Isner oh, on center court. Oh, my court. God. Can you imagine buying a night session ticket and this is the only match? <laughs> <laughs> Hope you enjoyed the audio. We'll have a lot more snippets and uh, interviewee type stuff uh, coming out this week. Look out for some good stuff from Kamal Mari. As always, I, I tell folks, like, I could just sit down and listen to Kamal Mari talk. And it feels like you're in a university lecture with a prof that you really enjoy. (laughs) I asked him about how his relationship with Monica Puig came about. And he volunteered. I didn't ask him, like, so, how did you and Sloan break up? He he volunteered that. And uh, you'll get to find out if there's any animus or not. If there's any there, there. Yeah. Uh, Thanks for listening. Uh, We'll have probably several more episodes for you this week possibly some writing Mm -hmm. and definitely some insta stories i'm gonna try to do that little thing where uh it makes the heart and it plays that cute music you know that (laughs) uh some boomerangs perhaps (laughs) you may get some insta videos from us we may give you cute little one minute videos like last year yeah and i did say on twitter that i have some new headwear to debut Mm -hmm. yeah no glasses but hats now Well, you wear both, just not at the same time. Exactly. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on ten. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James. I'm at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. The podcast is on Twitter at the Body Serve. We're a lot more active with our Body Serve Twitter account, so pay attention to that. It's usually me, and if it's something you think is even slightly rude or messy, it's definitely me. If it's a swift response to something, it's definitely James. <laughs> And, and definitely follow us on Instagram because we've also been very active there yeah, lately. It's really hard to get followers on Instagram. Yeah. It takes a while. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.